Judges 19. Not an easy passage to deal with this morning, Judges 19. I'd like to point out just a couple of things before we read it, things to pay attention to. The, the city in, in which the main characters of this chapter find themselves, and they don't have names, and there's a reason for that, but this is an Israelite city, one that uh, the main characters seek out thinking that that is where they'll find safety, and they find anything but safety. As we have gone through Judges, we found again and again the creeping effects of sin and the the way in which, well, there's so many lessons to be drawn from that, but uh, certainly this is perhaps one of the more difficult and grotesque parts of all the the Bible, but the, the similarity that we see is between this chapter and Genesis 19. What the narrator of Judges is showing us is that God's people when they have failed to deal with sin, they failed to drive out the Canaanites, they've allowed a, a Canaanite mindset or perhaps worldview to take over their mind. Idolatry has run rampant, immorality has gone uh, without check and, and without addressing. And now, all of a sudden, we find ourselves, this Israelite city is essentially the same thing as Sodom and Gomorrah, what we see in Genesis chapter 19. And so that's what's, what's happening in, in this chapter, kind of the full flowering of the immorality, the sin of, uh, of the people of God in the time of the judges. And just wanted you to be aware of that as we're reading it, to point out some of those things so you can see it as we're reading, and then we'll un- unpack it more, uh, more deliberately after it's read. But here now, God's holy and inspired word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. God's word, Judges 19. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the girl's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. When the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the girl's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. 
but unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jabus, that is, Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jabus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were Benjamites, he came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need any, anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. They raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. The grass withers. The flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. There are a lot of problems in the world, a lot of difficult and disgraceful things. Christianity is not one of them. Christianity is not one of the many problems of the world. Recently, in cultural conversation, it has been suggested that it is Christian culture, whatever, however we may define that term, that has brought about a low view of women a high degree of the abuse of women, men advancing their own interests at the 
expensive women, and on and on you may go. No reasonable or sane person would deny that in all of human history, often women have been horribly treated. But Christianity and the God of the Bible are not to blame for that. Rather, the scriptures furnish us with a very clear assertion of the truth that all life is sacred. Every human being is created in the image of God, and because of that, deserves treatment as such. It's an idea that has changed the world many times over. As we see here in Judges, the rejection of God and his truth and his word and his way of life, that is what has brought about these massive problems that God's people are experiencing in Judges 19. We're reminded of the truth that you may read in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3, which says this, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. The sinfulness that we can find within our hearts, if it is not dealt with, it will ravage lives and communities and nations. So how is the sin, the madness in our hearts, how is it dealt with? It's dealt with in the greatest story ever told. The story where the strongest came to save the weakest. See, the problem here is a Canaanite Mindset, a Canaanite mindset where the weak are there for the strong. The weak can be sacrificed and used and negotiated with to help and to serve the interests of the strong. That the weak can be thrown to the dogs. This is not Christianity. This is paganism or atheism, whatever title you may want to give to it. As we think about this difficult passage, I want us to ultimately be brought to this one life-transforming reality that our sin surrounds us, our sin traps us, our sin leaves us for dead. And since that is so, we must fly to the Savior, we must run to him, we must crawl to him because our Savior answers us in our need and we must go forth and live like him. Not only does our Savior answer us in our need, he comes out to save us, he comes out to save us. So, three things about the nation of Israel. It is a nation gone mad, it is a nation without a name, and it is a nation without virtue. That's where we are in the book of Judges. First, it is a nation gone mad. Obviously, we read that, very difficult to read that chapter and to think about, not only is this something that happened in human history, this is something that has taken place in the history of God's people. Shocking in many different ways. And you ask the question, where does sin take you? This is the answer in Judges. Where does sin take you? If it's not dealt with, it's not rooted out from your life, if you're not sensitive to where sin can take you, this is where you will end up. And if you learn nothing else from the book of Judges, you must learn this. If you do not root out sin from your life, if you are not about the business each and every day of putting it to death, it will destroy you. John Owen makes the point that sin basically needs two things to flourish in your life. It needs an occasion to latch onto. That's temptation. When there's a weakness in your heart and an occasion that would allow for you to live into that weakness or to experience how you might exercise that weakness, sin needs that. And it also needs time to fester and to grow. If it is not dealt with, if it is not rooted out then it will grow like a weed and it will choke out that which is 
good. This is, of course, what's happened in the case of Israel. They did not root out the sin in their hearts. Uh, They did not expel the Canaanites from the promised land, which God had commanded them to do. We've seen also that Israel cries out in anguish, but they never fully embrace repentance, do they? They cry out because they're upset about the way things are going for them. They don't have a a purpose of new obedience, of changing their life, of turning around. They simply cry out in anguish. And so this reminds us of the great need for repentance in our life, a sensitivity to sin, and also an awareness of keeping your hearts. Proverbs 4 says, Keep your hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Good things in your life, bad things in your life, whether they be holiness or vice, sin, it flows forth from who we are in our hearts, our inner life. The Proverbs 4 says, Keep your heart vigilantly, with diligence, doing it each and every day. It goes on to say in Proverbs 4, Specific examples of what you should do. Put away from you crooked speech. Put devious talk from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet and all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So there's this call to remove sin, to do so vigilantly, Vigilantly, we can only do that by God's grace, but we do it nonetheless. John Owen says, if you think about your life as a, as a battlefield and sin and the flesh and the devil as kind of the opposing army, you see it, once you notice it starting to advance on your life, he says, what you need to do is you need to send all of the forces you have, every ounce of strength you have, to kill it at the start, because you must kill it when it is weakest. It's a good idea. To keep in mind. We read in Judges 19 that Israel had no king. And more so than a commentary on the need for a human king, this is saying that Israel has rejected God as their king. God had set him up, himself up as the king of Israel, the king of the Israelites, who had saved them, who had brought them out of Egypt. They've rejected the kingship of God. God is not Lord of us. We're not going to meticulously and carefully follow all the things that God has prescribed for us. Every man will do what is right in his own eyes. One commentator puts it beautifully. He says, Israel lacks a theological reason for not sinking to the level of the Canaanites. In other words, if they knew God truly, and if they knew God rightly, rightly regarded him and knew him, who he is and what he had done for them, they would not have fallen to this low place. It's a reminder to us of the need for correct doctrine, the need for important doctrine. If you know who God truly is and how he has revealed himself, it will have massive implications for how you live your life. Think of all of the bad doctrine in the Israelites' lives throughout the book of Judges. All of the idolatry, all of the bad ideas. Think of Jephthah's vow on the battlefield. Well, I'll make this vow and then God will have to do something good for me. He did not know the true God, and how the true God acts in his grace. All of this bad doctrine, festering and growing, God is not their king, they don't know who God truly is, and look where they end up. 
Thomas Manton says, Christ is not our king when we do our own will. So it's a nation gone mad. The scene in Judges 19, the Levite and his concubine, as they make their way into the city square and what happens that night, it's madness, isn't it? It's insanity. It's because sin has not been dealt with. It's a nation without a name. No one has names in this chapter. You notice that? No one has names. Now in that world, the name was everything. It made you someone. You defended your name. You protected your name. You tried to cultivate it and pass it on to future generations. Ironically, what has happened here, everyone's been doing what's right in their own eyes. Everyone becomes king of their own little kingdom. It's kind of a postmodern individualistic society, kind of like what we live in today. Everyone has their own truth. Everyone has their own moral standard, their own right and wrong. They're going to do what seems right to them. And in our world, and perhaps in the eyes and the mind of the Israelites at that time, that was an exalting of the individual. You make the individual the measure of all things. But what ends up happening is the individual ceases to mean anything. Because there is no objective standard where we can define the value of human life. How does an individual have uh, sacred rights? How does a life actually come to mean anything if we confer our own meaning upon ourselves? We have conversations today about this life matters, that life matters, this group of lives matters. And that's a human conversation because that's a conversation about power. Lives, groups of lives don't just matter, they're sacred. They're sacred. See, a human can confer some kind of secondary meaning upon something, but God is the one who gives sacredness to human life. He is the creator. And because he has created all human beings and has uh, shown us that, that we matter to him, it's because of that that lives are sacred. You see, we don't find ultimate meaning in ourselves. We find it outside of ourselves. As humanity, what we need to do, what would be great for us to do now, is to stop screaming about power, having a power struggle. Today, one group of voices is loudest or can gain the most favor in the public opinion. Tomorrow, it'll be somebody else. Lives don't just matter. They're sacred because it comes from God and is blessed by God. And because of that, every image bearer deserves to be treated as if their life is sacred. It's a nation without a name. It's also a nation without virtue. It's a nation without virtue. This is a people that has rejected God's command to care for the wanderer. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in Egypt. We read that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow loves the sojourner. He gives him food and clothing. Leviticus chapter 19. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns uh, sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says, you were helpless, and I helped you. So when you see someone who is helpless, help them. Remember what I did for you in Egypt. You were a nothing, a nobody people. No one had any regard for you in all the world. I set my love upon you. I plucked you out. I saved you. I gave you land. I gave you a place to live. So you remember those who are 
helpless. This Levite and this concubine, they themselves don't have necessarily a life of righteousness that's anything to write home about. Their sins are perhaps more respectable in the eyes of that world. The fact that you have a, a Levitical priest who has this, this, whom he regards as a concubine, so therefore some kind of secondary wife, that itself is a, a low and sinful view of women. You see this immorality kind of running rampant, but it's sort of brought to the fore in this scene in Judges 19, where you have a guest in the city, exposed and in danger, they need someone to care for them, and rather than care for them, the citizens of this city take advantage of them and abuse them. They resemble, they come to resemble the worst city in all of Scripture. The links to Genesis 19 are unmistakable. You read Judges 19, go read Genesis 19, you see exactly what's going on. All of these links to Genesis 19. The narrator in Judges is saying, Israel has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're no better and probably worse. They've rejected God's order, right? That's what homosexuality is. It's a rejection of God's order. God says, here's how I've created the world. Here's the order that I have set up. You reject it. You say, that's not how I'm going to operate. I'm going to do something that's directly opposite of that. So you have them rejecting God's order. You see how twisted they are in their sinfulness. They will not be satiated in all of their vice and all of their sinfulness. They have no regard for human beings, image bearers of God. Everyone is there to sort of be used and abused for their own pleasure. Perhaps the most excruciating part is when uh, they're safe in the house and the people are surrounding the home, demanding for this priest to be tossed out. And you read that and you say, well, what's going on here? Is it, is it in some twisted way commendable that uh, the concubine gets thrown out? What, what's going on? What's the message of this passage? What's going on there when the host and the priests are trying to reason with the people outside of the house is they're operating basically by male honor codes in the world at that time. The host says, don't do this disgraceful thing. Don't do this to my guest. What does that mean? What he's trying to do is he's trying to preserve his reputation and his name as a host of another man. So everyone else in the house can sort of be used can be used as a negotiation piece to save his own honor. The priest, likewise, when he finally comes to the point where he throws his concubine out to the dogs, what he's doing is he's acting, defending his name as a guest. You see, in the mind of the Levitical priest, in the mind of this host, it is men who have honor and men who defend their honor and the weak around them can be used and abused to uphold their good name. So, the host rejects his duty as a father. Here is my virgin daughter, right? Which would be really your most prized possession in the world. You're reminded of Jephthah again, aren't you? Jephthah makes this foolish vow, ends up having to sacrifice his daughter uh, because he made his foolish vow. Here, this man, wanting to defend his name, wanting to have some kind of earthly honor, is willing to throw his daughter out to the dogs. The priest rejects his duty as a husband, ultimately tossing his concubine out and leaving her for dead. This view of women that they are property or leverage to negotiate with is not from the Bible, it's from Canaan. 
This is the message of judges. They're a Canaanized people. They don't have the truth that the king of kings created this daughter, that the Lord of lords created this concubine. The message of scripture is find within the people of God and within your life, find the people that seem to have less earthly honor and clothe them with more honor. That's the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The body of Christ, there are those who have the appearance of less honor. What we are to do as God's people is to seek them out and to clothe them with more honor because we understand that they're created by God, that they matter to God, and that so often the order and the thinking of this world is that the strong exalt themselves and the weak serve them. We read, as the night goes on, this woman abused, left for dead, despicable and excruciating. And the next morning, the priest's attitude seems to be simply that he's going to continue on his way. He almost, you picture it, he almost trips over his concubine, not going out to find her. He's going to simply continue on his way. He sees her get up, he says. No answer. Puts her on his donkey. And then, horrifically, we read about him going and cutting her up. And we're not even told that she is ever really dead, which forces us to ask the question, is it even conceivable that somehow it's the priest who finishes her off? We don't know. We're not told, but we have to at least ask the question. The message of the whole chapter is that a world where the strong use their strength to help themselves is a world that's headed for chaos. It's a world that's headed for destruction. It's a world of disorder. It's a world of sin. It's a world of evil. Perhaps some of you saw this week that I shared a story that I found particularly touching. It was a story of a six-year-old boy who saw a dog attacking his little sister, probably, little sister probably four or so. He stepped in, six years old, stepped in, stood his ground, saved her. The picture, his face is all, half his face is all mangled. And he said this shocking thing in the story. He said, if someone had to die, I thought it should be me. He sustained very significant injuries. And you see his face, and if you just were to see this little boy with, you know, he's got this the perfect little face of a six-year-old. And if you were just to see his face it would be excruciating and it would, it would leave you almost hopeless at, the, at what happens in the world. But the picture of him is next to his sister whose face is untouched and just one of those, again, those perfect little faces of a little girl that fills your heart with joy when you see it. You realize he used his strength, what little strength he had, and at six years old you probably have more courage than strength at that point, but he steps in and he saved her. He used what strength he had in the service of another. And I would pose this question. If someone says Christianity is the problem of our world or our society, Christianity is what produces this low view of women or the high rate of the abuse of women, I would pose this question to those who have Christianity in their sights as the problem with the abuse of the weak in our world. Who emulates God more? The priest who throws his concubine to the dogs, or the six-year-old who saves his sister, uses what little strength he has to save his sister from the attack 
of the dogs. You read Judges 19, you're kind of left with mostly questions. And you say, where am I in this story? Where am I in this story? What's God saying? What's God saying to us? What's God saying to me? Where am I reflected in this story? Well, a couple of places. First, we see the danger of our sin, right? The sin of the nation of Israel is a reminder how far you can fall. Let sin run rampant in your life and see where you end up. See where your sin takes you. See how horrible your life becomes. The sins of the priest and the host in that despicable negotiation with the crowd around the house that reminds us how easy it is for us to operate in our own interests. For us to regard our strength as something to advance our own interests and not to serve others. We see ourselves there. But I would suggest that we also see the reality of our predicament, the reality of our helplessness, the reality of our hopelessness, the reality of our need for a savior, that we see it in the concubine, particularly when she is surrounded, when she's thrown out to the dogs, when there's nowhere for her to run. But that ultimately, finally takes us to the love and the matchless wonder of the savior. To go back to John Owen once more, he says this, the soul cries out for help and deliverance. It looks round about to all springs of gospel grace and relief. It trembles at the furious assaults of sin and it throws itself into the arms of Christ for deliverance. Where will sin take you? It will take you outside, away from protection. Sin and the devil will destroy you. He wants to abuse you. He wants to leave you for dead. But if you measure your sin rightly, if you understand your need for salvation, your sin will take you to Calvary, to the rock of ages, cleft for you and for me, in whom we can hide ourselves and be safe and protected. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Christ did not wait in the house like the Levite did. He came out to us in the town square to save us, to take our sin upon himself, to bear the blow for sin, and to bring us to safety. Remember that little boy, what did he say about his sister? He said, if someone had to die, I figured it should be me. Jesus said, in the history of redemption, when the the, the plan of God's salvation was formed in the mind of God, and the the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit covenanted together to say, we're going to save a people. The Son said, if someone has to die, it should be me. It should be me. And if you've gone to Calvary to have your sin dealt with at the cross by the rock of ages, the one who hides you, the one who protects you, then the door to the Father's house is open. Heartbreaking, isn't it? To think the concubine crawling, almost dead, crawling to the threshold of the house. But in Christ, the Father's house is open and the door is open and we have a seat at the table. Luke 13, the people will come from east and from west and from north and south and take their places at the banquet table in the kingdom of God. 
Jesus says in John chapter 10, no one will be able to snatch his people out of the Father's hand. Safe in the arms of Christ. Safe in the protection of our Heavenly Father. We're reminded of the power of sin. We're reminded of the danger of sin. We see where sin will take us. But if you measure your sin rightly, if you go to Christ at Calvary, if you hide yourself in his work, then he protects you. He comes out to you. He saves you at the furious assaults of sin. He brings you home to your father's house and you have a seat at the table. A lot of problems in the world. Christianity is not one of them. And as we look to Christ, our our Hearts can be filled with joy. Our mouths can be filled with joy as we say, there's not enough, I don't have enough lives, I don't have enough mouth, I don't have enough tongues to praise God for so great a salvation. Judges shows to us the seriousness of condemnation, how awful sin is and and how awful things sin can do in the lives of a human heart that's filled with madness all of its days. In Christ... We see the joy of salvation. We see the wonder of salvation. We see the wonder of becoming God's children as we look to the one who came out to the town square to save us, to protect us, to bear the blow, and to bring us home to his heavenly Father. Trust in him and live like him. Amen. Let's pray. So great God, we thank you for so great a salvation. Fill our hearts, our mouths, our lives with the joy of knowing Christ. We confess that uh, before such a a passage, we, we don't have all the answers. And we know that this is a warning to us to return to you. This is a call to to flee to Christ, to run to the fountain. And may we do that by your grace and by your power. We praise you, we thank you, and we worship you in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. We'll stand together, sing number 383, O for a thousand tongues.
go in his grace, receive God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.